Bunzai! To baby trees. Bunzai. Bunzai! Bunzai. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it, yeah. it's. He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. The Black Pondo Podcast. You can ask me anything. I'll, I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> nice. Okay. Tell me the story about how you got interested in bonsai and where are you from? Um. So I am from Bay Area, California. And I became interested in bonsai really by just happening to like randomly come across one and it just sparked an interest in me and I just kind of looked online and I started looking at Google and it kind of led down this huge rabbit hole where it just kind of snowballed from there so that's kind of how I got started and I tried to do it by myself at the start because I had no prior um growing experience you know i've never grown any fruits or vegetables or plants or anything so i was really starting out with you know from from zero i probably spent about a year just kind of trying to learn and grow things and just randomly picking up little stuff but i quickly quickly learned that it was uh, above my head and so i s- tried to find somewhere i could study and learn and yeah, it kind of just escalated quickly from there. That's awesome, man. What uh, or how old were you when you first got into bonsai, and how long ago was that? It was. I was probably. I was late twenties. Late twenties, probably about less than ten years ago. Seven, eight years ago, probably six, six seven, eight, six, seven, eight years ago, somewhere around there. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Awesome. Okay. So how did you and Jonas link up? Yeah, Jonas from Bonsai Tonight. Jonas was uh, one of the founding members of the BIB group with Boone. And across my you know investigations, I found Boone's group and went to a couple of his meetings with the club. And um, I saw Jonas there and I was kind of reading his blog. And I just kind of started talking to Jonas and he invited me to his his little setup that he had to come pick up some materials. And when I was there, when I went to go pick up that stuff, you know, we were just talking a lot and nice, friendly, easy conversations. And I, I told him that if he ever, you know, wanted some extra help, I was really eager to get my hands on, you know, learning and doing what I can to learn. So I told him, you know, if there's anything I can do to help, you know, please let me know. I'm all for just coming, coming by and helping out and doing whatever needs to get done. And at that time, Jonas had just started um, doing bonsai full time. And so he took on that free help willingly. So Jonas, uh, he has one of my all-time favorite blogs. I mean, he's he probably has the most bonsai articles out of anybody ever written. But I'd say my top three favorite bonsai blogs are Jonas's Bonsai Tonight 
Peter T's from his apprenticeship and then Michael Hagedorn's. Yeah. So what I really like about Jonas's blog is that it comes from a, a place of like scientific exploration. You know, he really analyzes and experiments and spends a lot of time trying to find what works and what doesn't. Especially in the bonsai space, there's a lot of information that doesn't always, you know, pan out to be really accurate in a lot of situations. Um, so Jonas has a really good way of thinking and writing and talking about content that's unique and not a lot of people do. So yeah, I, I really appreciate how he really comes at bonsai from a scientific and realistic logical place i like it yeah most definitely and you know it's it's interesting we learn bonsai and so much of the knowledge is just passed down and it's really based off of oh, it's it's very much uh, anecdotal and there's Super. not a lot of scientific study behind everything so it is very very nice when you actually get some experiments that are performed in a scientific manner i i absolutely love to see that kind of stuff and i yeah. agree with you it's, it's great to see when he actually has done some experience experiments to prove different things yeah right so that's i mean it's funny you say that because a lot of the you know how they teach in japan is that just passing down the knowledge from anecdotal experience and so a lot of people you know they learn from somebody who learns from somebody who learns from somebody and it all gets passed down and passed down we live in a we live in a in a time where there's just so much information out there that it's a little easier to get some of those facts and anecdotes you know it's a little easier to um you know get more information you know yeah, yeah, most definitely. So I think that it's interesting. One thing, I, okay, so I was looking up a scientific study about biochar, right? Like horticultural charcoal. Okay. And it's interesting in the bonsai community, I feel like it's kind of split. Like, like half the people say, hey, it's great to have in your soil. The other half say it's not. And I feel like there hasn't been a, a bunch of scientific studies showing plants growing with biochar compared to plants growing without biochar. But it just seems like it's pretty complex from the studies that I was looking at. Some of them are saying that, oh, well, it it actually, if you put biochar in the soil, it affects the pH of the, the, uh, of the soil, right? So if you have a really high pH, maybe biochar is a really good thing. But if you have a low pH, maybe biochar is not the best thing. All the studies that I looked at, they were based off of plants growing in the, in the ground. And the containerized environment is just such a different environment compared to when plants grow in the ground. So it's tough because, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of bonsai specific studies, not a lot of studies where they're using akadama pumice and lava and so it, it i don't know uh <laughs> yeah, it'd be cool that, i think like future go for it well you know 
not only that, but there's so many other factors that can play into, you know, an experiment like that. It's really difficult to have a set number of trees and everything be exactly the same. And even if you only have 10 exact same age, same amount of like healthy material and everything is the same, you know, to have that that variable that stays the same is extremely difficult to do. So even when we have some kind of somewhat of an experiment, you know, there's just so many factors that can affect the end result. So it can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to vary by species, for example, deciduous or conifer, how much light they're getting, the location within your yard. Maybe you accidentally fertilize this one a little bit more than that one. Exactly. Uh, Just controlling everything so that, you know, you're being perfect and very measured about everything is, it's just very time consuming. You have to put a lot of effort into it, possibly a lot of money, and it's just going to take a whole lot more effort to do those types of experiments. And therefore, that's why I don't personally do very many. I'm pretty bad about it. For example, like I'm using RO water right now. Okay. I'm only using it on my uh, my best trees. So about 15 trees, I use RO water. And and it seems like it's working and it's uh, it's doing a better job than my water straight out of the, out of the tap. However, yeah. You know, like I probably treat those trees a lot better in other ways and and I'm not even recognizing like maybe, you know, I'm just a little more on top of uh, fertilizing, a little more on top of spraying them, things like that. So, yeah, very challenging, takes a lot of effort. I'm personally not don't really have the time and energy to like make sure everything is perfectly controlled. And therefore, it's very anecdotal when I explain that I think one thing works better than another. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I totally agree. There's just so many situations. So as long as it doesn't have like a super negative effect and positive and you're kind of watching it and the longer we have our trees, the longer we can kind of see and change little things here and there. And then we can kind of get a better idea of how all these little variables change the overall aspect of how everything gets done. Just take Absolutely. everything with a grain Absolutely. of salt. <laughs> hey, so tell tell me more about Jonas. What what drew you to Jonas? So I know he has a great blog. Did he charge you at all when when you were uh, working under him? No, Jonas. You know he never he never charged me. And in fact, now I charge him. He pays me now. But Jonas is Jonas is just a really you know a nice guy. Super super guy stand-up guy he just wants the community the bonsai community in america to thrive and so he's really good about helping everyone and passing out information and doing what he can to really push american bonsai in a positive direction and he's a really or a really positive guy and a he never he never charged me he was you know it was just free help so i did a lot of whatever needed to be done easy stuff at first and yeah just went from there i'm sure he could see the passion that you had about bonsai and that's why he really kind of took you under his wing i have heard jonas say ask 
what does the bonsai community need right now? Like he's asked mm. that aloud, and that's a question that we've kind of bounced off each other. I think he's it's so cool that he's always thinking about that. And I completely agree with you. I mean, the things that he's done for American bonsai are absolutely awesome. Yeah. Especially now, I think he, he just took things to the next level with the Pacific Bonsai Expo. Yeah, he always takes things to the next level. <laughs> absolutely. And written a few books now. And yeah, he, he's he's rad. I love Jonas. Yeah, he was actually the one who instilled that uh, ghost study in Japan kind of bug in my ear and then watered that seed. Would you say he kind of pushed you over the edge to go into Japan? Uh, I don't I don't know if it was like pushing me over the edge, but he definitely had a huge influence over what I do now and what I did then. And Gotcha. And do you think that you knew that you wanted to go over there for a long period of time or were you thinking more it would be a short term kind of thing and then you'd come right back to the States? So I didn't, you know, to be honest, I didn't really have an idea of what how long I wanted to stay you know I'm not I wasn't when I went over there I wasn't as young as um people normally do so normally people are like 18 20 years old when they go over there and are in that environment and I was almost you know I was 30 years old by the time I went over there and so I know I knew that I didn't want to spend you know six years there uh but kind of leaving it open I wasn't against it but I wasn't pushing for it I just let you know my life dictate how long I stayed over there for and I ended up staying there for three years and that was the longest I was able to stay there for financially and everything else it was that's all I could do at the time so congrats on that and that in that three uh three plus years you received your certificate right it, yeah, Shohin, Shohin Certificate Certified from the Japanese Shohin Bonsai Association. Yeah, you know, just to get that, you have to spend a minimum of two years studying Shohin Bonsai with somebody who also has that certificate. Congrats on, on achieving that. That uh, is incredible. I don't know. <laughs> do you think anyone else in the U.S. has, has that cert? So I, there, I'm pretty sure one other person in America has that certification. You know, honestly, I don't know who it is, but I'm pretty sure one other person does. But other than that, you know, it's just ah, gotcha, just me. Yeah, very nice. I'd be interested to know who that is. But uh, congrats yeah. on that cert. That's great. Yeah. So normal uh, apprentice age is that like uh, right coming out of high school? Is typically in Japan? Yeah, usually you're right out of high school. You go, just like, you know, you're going into a trade, following the family steps, footsteps, right out of high school or after college is very common. It's a very difficult and grueling process to work that that hard. And so usually when you're younger, early 20s, that's going to be the best time to do it. The older you get, the more difficult it becomes. You know, I am, I'm very fascinated about the whole Japanese apprenticeship thing. It's just seems so interesting to me. I know that there are trade apprentices for, for several different fields. I just watched a video today about 
a gentleman that went over there and did an apprenticeship on sumi ink making. And mm. you wouldn't think that that would be something that you'll go and study for many years. However, it, it, the process that they went through to make these little sumi ink blocks that costed like a thousand dollars each was mm. very, very interesting. And just in general, uh, bonsai apprenticeship the concept is is just very fascinating to me can you tell me the story how'd you end up at taishoen how'd you wind up there yeah you know japanese the traditional kind of japanese career choices like woodworking and noodle making and bonsai gardening the other traditional kind of career choices all have that apprenticeship aspect to it and it is really fascinating and it is interesting. And so for me, how I ended up at Taisho Inn was I didn't at the time I didn't know I didn't know who was famous. I didn't know a lot of people. I didn't know which gardens were good or bad. And so I spent I decided to go to Japan to go check it out. I spent two weeks traveling all around Japan checking out different nurseries and different gardens and while I was there talking to people and asking where I should check out and it kind of led me all over the place and almost towards the end of my trip I landed at Taisho Inn and when I when I got there I had a I had a good feeling about it and I spoke with the apprentice who was there at the time who in, ended up being my senpai and spoke with Taiga, which was very unusual because a lot of the nurseries I went to, most people wouldn't even talk to me. Like the the nursery leaders or the you know the the masters or whatever you want to call it. Taiga Urushibata gave me you know his time of day and he we sat down and we talked and talked about what was expected. And I just got a really good feeling from him. And I could tell that he was a good person, who he is as a person, you know. And it just it just felt right. And at that time, I kind of decided right then and there, like, this is where I wanted to study. And so I put all my effort from then on just trying to study with Taiga there at Taishouen. Taiga seems like so cool. You know, I I only know or see him through Facebook and Instagram, but yeah. he does he he has like a meerkat pet and he has pictures of like classic cars. He's got cool hair and I know that he knows Daisaku <laughs> who if anyone spent time with Daisaku, he's just like the funniest fun funnest person there is. So, I I picture him as like just a really cool guy even though I've never met him personally. What would you describe his personality like outside of work? Oof. So, yeah, him and Daisaku are really good friends. I don't have a lot of experience with Taiga outside of that work relationship since he was my Oyakata. That's kind of the relationship that it evolved into. And so I didn't get a lot of time with him outside of work. And so all I know is that, you know, he he took me in and he was very nice and taught me and 
gave me a lot of opportunities and I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, I mean, as far as who he is as a person outside of work, I just have very limited experience with him. But the experience that I do have was what led me to want to study there, you know? So I could, I, I just had a feeling that he was a good person and, you know, interesting and has a lot of cool hobbies and fantastic bonsai artists. So, yeah. He definitely is a fantastic bonsai artist. Love, love seeing all of his uh, trees that he posts up online and they always look super yeah. clean and very nice. Awesome. And would you say uh, in coming back to the U.S., are you trying to focus specifically on Shoheen bonsai? So I'm not only focusing on small trees. Right now I'm kind of doing, you know, whatever, whatever is available, whatever people have work for. But my own personal trees are small trees. I really enjoy small trees. That's kind of what I have time for right now in my own personal collection. But really, you know, I'm, I, I can do anything and have just been focusing on what other people like. And so no real, no real focus as far as like work, work related focus, pretty much anything and everything. I did an episode with Bob Scheiman. It was an absolute pleasure to have him on. Really enjoyed talking to him about all his trees, rebs, and uh, collecting redwoods and pygmy cypress and, and trees like that. But he told me that you are leading a, the rebs workshops now, which is really cool. Yeah. Are you doing a lot of workshop type leading or are you doing a lot of like private styling stuff or just a combination of a lot of different things? Yeah, a combination of a lot of things. Bob is in one of my workshops and, you know, he always brings in cool material. Bob's great. And I'm doing a lot of workshop leads and um, private work, a little bit, of, really, really a little bit of everything. I even go to back to Jonas's a few times a week to work with Jonas and a lot of traveling. I don't really have a place. I don't have my own nursery or garden or space yet. So most of my, I mean, all of my work is elsewhere. So a lot of traveling and yeah. So would you say that your goal would be to have a nursery someday? Or do you have any other specific goals or things you'd like to accomplish in the future? Yeah, you know, I would like to have a place of my own in the future. Um, a nursery would be fantastic. I'd love a, an area where I can grow and work on trees and a workshop that I can make into and a space that I can really focus on bonsai. Right now, I'm just kind of taking it one step at a time, just trying to live, you know, make a living and hopefully eventually one day make my own garden. So, but very open to plans. I have these long-term goals that I want, but I'm very flexible in, in what expectations are and how to get there. And so I'm just kind of going with the flow right now. Solid. Well, I saw a few of the trees that you wired up and styled for Jonas and they looked absolutely fantastic. So great work <laughs> on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you'll get lots of work here in the US and we're very happy to have you back. Thank you. Changing gears here just a smidge. 
open to find out more about Taishouen. Uh, can, can you describe where it's located? So Taishouen is in a prefecture called Shizuoka. It's in between the middle of Tokyo and Kyoto. So it's, you know, mainland right in the middle. It's in the mountains, but it's right off the coast. And it's right by right by Mount Fuji. So Fujisan is right there. I could walk down the street and see it oh, in the background. Did you get to Yeah. Man, that's that's gotta be really cool. I've never seen Mount Fuji, but just some a lot of really great images of it, pictures and images of it, and uh would love to see it someday, definitely on my bucket list. Yeah, very, very iconic location. It's looking at a natural environment like that it, it feels like you're looking at the moon you know it's just very iconic very cool uh what do you know about the history of the nursery mm. taishouen was started by my oyakata's father nobuchi urushibata and he initially started it many decades ago and i'm pretty sure it started as an azalea nursery there was a huge azalea boom back in, you know, Japanese, the back in the day for J- Japan. And slowly, slowly changed into what it is today. But my Oyakata's father, who I call Sensei, my teacher, um, he's, he spent a lot of time working on that nursery and building what it is today. It started as a little, a little, like a backyard, basically. And now it takes up almost four plots of land. So it's a very, it expanded a lot over the years. Do you know which bonsai exhibits do they participate in? And have they won any awards that you're aware of? They participate in the major shows, a lot of the big major shows. They also have a local show that you they do for Shoheen and Mame Trees. The nursery itself, I'm not sure if they've won some kind of award, but my Oyakata has won awards for his work and his trees that he's worked on over the years. So solid, and I, I think you were telling me I, I was going to ask your favorite tree at the nursery. I think you were telling me it was the one that Taiga won an award for. It, uh, I believe it's a black pine or a red pine. He won the Sakafu for that huge red pine that he has, magnificent tree. But probably my favorite tree at the garden is this juniper, Shimpaku Itoigawa juniper. And it's uh, on a rock. And it's it was actually a, a... They root grafted onto it and took off a lot of the trunk. And so they, there it has these long branches that swoop down the rock. And it's just a really interesting and unusual kind of bonsai. Uh, I think I know the one that's really, really nice. And I also do really love that red pine. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to send you a picture right now. I'll Can send you, you a picture. Um... Awesome. Awesome. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Ooh, I got it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and is that in a, they call that a Karama stone? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm, yeah. It's some kind of stone. I don't know exactly what the stone is, but some kind of, one of those one of those kinds of stones. There's many different kinds. 
I really like how the branches swoop down below the pot. That's very interesting. Right. And it's it's that a gorgeous root like stand that. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So so this was actually that picture I showed you was actually a display for a shogi tournament, which is Japanese chess. And so the the two shogi masters in Japan played this huge match in this room and Taishouin was the one who set up bonsai for the background. So it was a, it was a really interesting experience. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I've actually never heard of that game before. <laughs> it's Shogi. like similar to chess. Yeah, it's also like a, look it's, it like up. Ch- it's Japanese chess. Yeah. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Nice. Could you describe the the layout of the nursery a bit? Mm. So when you walk in, you're greeted by a huge wooden sign that says Taishouin. There's a building on the right, and that was my workshop area, and that's where the main building is right there. Then on the left, there's another building, and in front of that building is where all the Shohin trees are. And Shohin and Mame trees are in that whole section to the left. And there's a lot of big conifers past the main building on the right. Then if you go up on the right, there's a lot of display, kind of like a garden display up in the garden up there. Then if you go all the way back towards the back of the nursery, there's another building that's kind of like a um, like a storage, just random stuff is in there. But behind that is the grafting area where we have a lot of our project trees. And so a lot of the trees that were being worked on over time are in that area over there. Then if you go to the right of that, there's a huge area with a lot of customers' trees where they leave and we've got them there, a little display area. And then towards, if you keep going towards the very, very back, there's a net house for exporting trees. So it's this huge netted off area where you keep bonsai inside so that insects and other stuff can't really get in so that they can export them in the future. And then the greenhouse is at the very, very back end. That's kind of the layout of the nursery. Thank you very much. If you had to guess, and I won't hold you to this because I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you know what percentage are shohin trees as opposed to like all other sizes? Hmm. So let's say let's say if we had five hundred, if we had five hundred trees at the nursery, probably two hundred, probably half. I'd probably say half of them are small trees. Cool. Would you say that? Taishouin is known as a Shohin nursery. Is that what they're, is that really what they're known for? Yeah. My Oyakata's father had a lot of good Shohin. So a lot of people, a lot of foreigners came to visit for the Shohin. So it's half Shohin and the other half is like conifers and normal, normal big trees. So it's a mix of small trees, really small trees and big trees and really big trees. A little, you know, it had really a lot of everything. So it was it was a good place. One thing that I think is interesting is that learning about these different 
bonsai professional nurseries in Japan, I've learned that some of them don't do certain things and, and they really kind of have specializations. Whereas、mm. here in the US, we're,、uh, the bonsai professionals seem more like, like jack of all trade kind of thing. I, I've heard of some professionals that don't graft, for example, right?、Oh, uh, was with Taisho in, you mentioned they had a, like a grafting area specific. Specifically, I was curious was there any type of work that they didn't do? And or did they farm any work out to other nurseries for, say, like grafting or some specialization? No, honestly, we did everything. We really did everything there.、Um, cool. We didn't export any or we didn't like、uh, send any work off to other places. We did everything in that. In that nursery.、Um, usually it's kind of like a lot of a lot of nurseries will only do azaleas or won't do any azaleas. So we didn't have a lot of azaleas. We only had a few azaleas. But for the most part, yeah, we did pretty much everything and anything. So great. Lots of different conifers, juniper, pine, as well as a bunch of different types of deciduous and some broadleaf evergreen. Yep, like everything from white pine, black pine, junipers to fruiting trees, flowering trees, plums and apricots, and taxis,、um, even some tea, tea trees. So, really, really everything broadleaf evergreens, conifers, deciduous, everything. That's so great to give you such a diverse experience on a lot of different types of trees. That's fantastic. Yeah. Huge, you know, a huge aspect of why I wanted to study there, too. So it was a little bit of everything, you know. I didn't want to just learn one thing or not learn something else. I really got a good wide range of a lot of things. Can you tell me a little bit about the types of businesses that, that、uh, the nursery performed and kind of like how they generated income? So, a lot of it was working on customer trees, selling trees at shows, a lot of auctions. Oh, we were always going to auctions,、um, selling and buying trees, and, you know, a lot of moving. Bonsai moves a lot. and... Japanese nurseries. So, a little bit of everything. You know, I hate to give you such a broad answer, but we really had a lot of different means of income at that nursery. Oh, that's great. You know, one thing I, I hear a lot about is, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I hear that there's a lot of Chinese customers that come to Japanese nurseries and they're kind of like buying up all the good stuff, is the rumor that I hear. Did you see much of that yeah, going、so、on there? They're not just buying all the good stuff. They're buying whatever they can get their hands on. They're really trying to, they have a huge appetite for bonsai and they're buying anything and everything they can get their hands on. A lot of the auctions and private buyers come in and buy a lot. So I definitely experienced that. Interesting. Did, so, were、uh, Chinese customers coming into your nursery and just picking up trees and porting them back to China? Yeah, all the time. There, there, we always had people coming in, not only from China. We had a lot of Chinese customers、um, that would come in and 
by truckloads, like literally truckloads of bonsai and pots and trinkets and this and that. They really, really are on the hunt for bringing bringing uh, bonsai back to China. Got it. Got it. Was do you know? I'm just curious. Like the quarantine process to get things back into China, I would assume it's not very regulated. Yeah. No. There's no no quarantine process there's no nothing oh geez yeah got it got it <laughs> not well, like here in the not states that i experienced yeah i don't think yeah it's not it's not the same it's very different over there so totally would you tell me a little bit more about your relationship with taiga so and this is something that's i feel like is somewhat complex and as a westerner it's something that I may not understand. I mean, it's it's interesting because here in the U.S., I, I have people that work under me at, in my career, and there's people that work over me. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we go out after work, and it's kind of like we forget about work, and we're friends, and we have very casual conversations. We keep things professional, but it's very casual. We're, we're extremely friendly with each other. And I, I know that the culture is very different in Japan, and I'm not saying that I understand it by any means. I really don't understand it. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like with Taiga? I mean, that just seems so foreign to me that you could work with someone and he would be very hard on you. And then even after work hours, though, it was kind of the same type of relationship. That's That's just so different to me. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit on that? Yeah, it really is really different. And honestly, I still have a hard time understanding it. But, you know, it's just how their culture is. And he, my Taiga was my Oyakata, which is my father teacher, basically. And his duty was to prepare me for owning my own business in the bonsai space. And so thought process behind it is working as a bonsai professional is very difficult so to prepare you for that hardship you know we have to toughen you up for the real world and so there's a lot of lessons to be learned and it always stayed in that space he was always above me He's always my teacher. He is always my master, so to say. And there was always a level of respect that is not only expected, but demanded. And yeah, it's just a very, it's very different. And it's, yeah, like I said, I, I have a hard time understanding it as well. Since I didn't grow up in that kind of environment, I was thrown into this situation that is very different and I just had to do the best I could in this situation at the time and I didn't always understand it and as time went on I kind of you know learned more about what was expected of me and how things are generally kind of go. So I just tried my best to kind of follow their cultural norms and 
Yeah. Man, that's that's just so different, you know. <laughs> and very different. Uh, I'm sure very uh, different. as yeah, as Americans, it would just be just <laughs> uh, just such a trip to get used to that. And I, I don't think we ever could fully uh, immerse ourselves into that culture. But um, can you give me any examples or or do any stories kind of come to mind where just showing kind of like. Um, what that relationship was like and maybe the ways in which they treated you on a daily basis that are different than here in the U.S.? Hmm. So if we were working, I would have to walk behind him. Let's say we went to some kind of event or, you know, we even had to go to the store for some materials or something. I would always be walking behind, um, carrying whatever needs to be carried, opening the door. If there was ever a situation, I would be getting the drinks or basically just helping and doing anything I could at all times, night or day, at work or not. It was very uh, almost servant-like. So... Yeah, I guess um, I, I guess that's a good way of putting it. Almost like a servant at all times. How can I serve him? What were meals like? Like, say, lunch, for example. Well, for a majority of the time while I was there, I was the youngest apprentice. And I had to do a lot of the preparing for lunch I wouldn't cook the food or anything like that but you know I'd set the table and make the tea and clean up after everybody and so the meals were expected to eat very very quickly time is money and during lunch I'd have to be the last one to start eating usually the head the head of the environment starts the process and I'd start last, but it was also expected that I finished first um, so that I could, you know, help clean up the table and whatever else, pour, pour drinks. Jeez, they eat very, very quickly, and only a handful of times was I able to finish my meal before everybody else. It was very, very difficult to eat that quick, that much food and that quickly, but Every day I tried my hardest to eat everything as quick as I could. So very different kind of environment for wow. every possible situation. Did you find yourself still hungry at uh, the end of a lot of meals or, or was it usually you did eat, you ate a lot? Yeah, usually it's, you know, I'm really full. Um, if we went out to dinner or some kind of special special circumstance there's a lot of food to be eaten and there was many times where I was past full and you kind of just have to eat everything and keep going kind of thing yeah was how housing and meals provided or what was the the upfront expectations kind of on both ends 
Yeah, so at Taisho Inn, I had my own studio apartment. Traditionally, the apprentices were to stay with the family in the same house as everybody else. But at Taisho Inn with my Oyakata, they had an apartment building and I had my own little studio apartment and that was a huge driving factor and one of, you know, why I chose to study there as well. I really like getting off of work and having my own little space and making my own dinner and stuff like that. So, but, so yeah, a living quarters was supplied for me and also my Oyakata uh, bought me lunch every day. So I had lunch and a place to live. And other than that, everything, everything else was uh, on my to be supplied by myself. So breakfast and dinner and everything else that I needed was uh, for myself, which I like, you know, I, I enjoy that kind of, I enjoyed that kind of situation. So it was nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like having your own space for your own mental sanity is very important. Um, did your, important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Did your, uh, and I forget, is she your fiance or wife? Did she ever come visit you? Yeah. So my fiance was, um, a huge support for me financially and spiritually. So I didn't make any money during my whole time while I was there. So at Taisho Inn, you don't get paid as an apprentice, but I had my own place to live and lunch. So my fiance supported me financially the entire time I was there. I was almost out of work for four years and she supported me. And she, yeah, she did visit me. She even spent a little time living there as well. Right as COVID hit, um, America kind of shut down and Japan, the economy never really shut down. And so there was work still available in Japan. She spent a little time teaching English out there. So that was nice. Yeah, she was a oh, huge, cool. huge support for me. Oh man, I think uh, you are definitely a very lucky man, and uh, I I feel like people are listening to this right now, and they're like, "Where do I meet someone like that?" <laughs> yeah, um, it's really hard uh, to explain. Wh what is how, her name? How fantastic! It's really hard to describe how fantastic she's been during this whole process, and how supportive and just great she's been. She really, you know, saw that I had a dream and supported me with it, and I owe her everything so i owe her a lot um her name is irena irena that's her name irena she's nicaraguan but she's from america you know we grew up i i knew her for a long time very cool yeah i met her super briefly at the pacific bonsai expo she seems absolutely awesome so shout out to her for supporting you and uh shout that is absolutely out. awesome man yeah <laughs> cool hey how's your how's your japanese so my japanese is okay i'm not fluent i can understand a lot i can translate for somebody kind of basic stuff definitely not fluent in it but i can get by 
Uh, I spent, you know, a little over three years. But when I first showed up, my Japanese was very poor, very, very bad. And I got in a lot of trouble for not knowing enough Japanese. So I know my, my Oyakata was very frustrated with my Japanese when I first got there. And it was always a huge, a huge aspect that I lacked in. But, you know, I spent three years there and they spoke Japanese to me every day. Um, only when I was in really big trouble would they speak English to me. So most of it was Japanese. I had Oof. to Yikes. spend a lot of time studying. And, you know, if I didn't know something, I'd have to write it down and look it up later or ask a question. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a arduous process to learn Japanese. I can't even imagine being in that situation, not, not, being great with the language and under all that stress from being an apprentice, I can't can't even under, understand. How's uh how's Tiger's English? His English is fantastic. He, I mean, for a Japanese person, really, his English is okay. fantastic. But it was you know said up front that just because he can speak English doesn't mean that he was going to. And so, you know, 99% of the time we spoke Japanese. Cool. Do you know uh, much about hi him and Daisaku's relationship? Are they like uh, super tight? All I know is that they're good friends and they've been friends for a long time. Other than that, I don't know the nature of their relationship. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. Yeah, Daisaku is uh, hilarious and always a good time and uh, yeah. <clears throat> such a such a great personality I, I really like that guy a lot yeah he's a good um, person Daisaku's cool great. What, so do you think that it was considered cool or, or there was some type of level of prestige if Japanese professionals had American or foreign apprentices or was it was it a mm. positive thing if they had foreign apprentices or was it like a negative thing or because uh, it, it's kind of like so common these days I just wonder what other people think about it and what other Japanese professionals think about it. I, I know that's maybe so a question from, for Taiga directly, but I'm just curious. Your yeah. Thoughts. So from my experience, it seemed like a negative thing. Ideally, it's a very kind of traditional aspect of Japan. And ideally, a Japanese apprentice is much, much better uh, but there's so much work to be done at a bonsai nursery that Japan needs all the help they can get. And, you know, um, Japan, the young people aren't as interested in bonsai as the rest of the world is right now. So there's a lot more foreign apprentices available. But ideally, it would be a Japanese person doing the apprenticeship. I don't think it was seen as a positive. Overall, I would say it's more negative. Yeah. Almost almost um, to the point of, I don't want to say this, but maybe cultural appropriation. That's how, that's how it kind of felt at some times. Um, there was a lot of times where it, didn't feel good being a foreign person in those situations. Um, I felt 
a lot of disrespect from a lot of people in the Japanese bonsai space. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I don't, I don't know if it was, I don't know. I think that's complicated. I don't think it was just because they're foreigners. You know, I think some of it is because it was me and I don't know. I think that's a kind of a complicated, uh, kind of a complicated subject, but overall I would say not positive not a good thing yeah i'm sure it's very complex and trying to understand anyone's culture when you're not from that culture is very challenging and uh probably not realistic and i'm sure part of it was that they just wanted to keep bonsai going strong within japan or they want to keep bonsai going strong within japan exactly uh so yeah so um can you tell me maybe about a time when maybe you were rude or you quote unquote messed up, but you, you didn't know that you did because of uh, cultural differences. Hmm. Gosh, I could write a whole book on that. There's so many times where I probably did something that, you know, I shouldn't have done. I didn't know. Let's see if I can come up with an anecdote. Let's see. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of little things. It's a lot, a lot of little things. For sure. Um, one of uh, my my experience, like uh, I was there, I did a visiting apprenticeship at Aichian Nursery for like two and a half weeks. It was an incredible Fun. experience. Very different. They tr- They treated me very, very good when I was there, like I was a, a guest the whole time. Um, that's great but there are little things like for example i didn't realize or every time i would leave the nursery they would come out to the front of the nursery with me they would walk me out and they would wave goodbye until my car had (laughs) driven away from the nursery and that's something that we don't do here in the states and so it was just so different i'm sure like tons of that kind of thing happened with you yeah tons of that kind of thing walking if I was walking, I couldn't keep my hands in my pocket. I'd have to have my hands in front of me or behind my back, not wearing a hat, oh, especially inside. Yeah. Slurping your food and noodles is okay. Let's see. That's so different. <laughs> I know, right? Um, talking, talking while you're working is kind of frowned upon. Yeah, it's just a... It's a very polite society. Everyone is very polite to each other. And so there's a huge emphasis on being polite and showing, you know, appreciation to everyone else. Whereas it almost seems like here in America, we're polite to the people we care about, but we're rude to the people we don't care about or we don't know. And it's almost the like opposite there. If you don't know somebody, you're extra polite to those people. And if you do know somebody, you can kind of open up and, you know, let your guard down and not be on your best behavior, you know? Well, I've never thought about it like that. It's really interesting that you pointed out in that manner. Very Mm. interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about your work schedule? Did you have days off? 
and uh, so, or were you working? How many hours a day were you working? So I had one day off a month, and I started at seven thirty in the morning, and we had a lunch break at noon, and usually around twelve thirty to one we'd start working again, but during that time we could also spend studying books and looking at books and stuff. So it was like a study kind of lunch break. Then at 6.30, 6.37, uh, we'd go home for dinner and we'd spend about an hour, hour and a half for a dinner break. And then we'd go back to work around 8, 8.30. And normally... You know, we'd spend another two, two and a half hours at work. And, but, you know, sometimes, you know, we'd work until 10, 11. There'd be sometimes I'd work till 12, 1. And rarely I'd had, I've worked past 1 to 2, even 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes. So a lot of work. And that was Monday through Saturday. And then on Sundays, it was just a normal 7.30 in the morning until 7 at night. And then I wouldn't go back to work on Sunday nights. So I'd use that time to go grocery shopping or doing laundry or whatever else. That was my normal work schedule. Man, talk about another cultural difference. That is that is a lot of hours to be working. That's, that is so much, man. Um, also... On the positive side of that, a lot of hours to be learning bonsai, so that's that's great. Not all nurseries are the same. Not all apprentices are the same. So, you know, there's other nurseries where they have one day off a week or one day off every other week or, you know, even sometimes two days off a week. But where I was, it was a very study-study, work-work kind of environment. That is hardcore. Did you have any uh, interesting or cool experiences on your days off? Maybe any stories that you remember or anything that you went and checked out that was really cool? So usually, because I only had one day off a month, I usually spent that one day off a month like grocery shopping or cleaning my apartment or preparing. I didn't really have a lot of time to travel or anything. But one time... For Christmas, I asked for two days off in a row, and I rode my motorcycle, my little motorbike, to Mount Fuji and back. So, took a little, took a little motorbike trip to Mount Fuji, which was really cool. Oh man, what a cool experience! What a, a bucket list yeah. type uh, experience that must have been. Yeah, seriously. Nice man. Would you tell me about the the first your very first day at the nursery and maybe like your first month? What was what was that like? So my first day I was very nervous. You know, the first day my senpai, my bigger brother, basically, my brother apprentice, he spent the day showing me around the nursery and explaining to me my duties and he 
because I didn't understand a lot of Japanese, he showed me a lot of what was expected of me. And so the first month was very, very challenging, very, very difficult to get into that mindset and into that work kind of environment, um, working that much. So, yeah, I, I remember my first three months were extremely challenging. Um, a lot of those days, I really wanted to call it quits and head home back to America. But I just kind of had a driving force inside of me that kept me going, you know. Yeah. What was your sen uh, senpai's name? And do you still keep in contact with him? Yeah, I talk to him every once in a while. His name is Yusei Sasaki. And his father is actually a very famous Shohin professional in Japan. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What duties uh, as an apprentice did you like the most? And then what, what duties did you like the least? Mm. I didn't like preparing like lunch. I didn't like cleaning up after people or cleaning the bathrooms. Um, There's a lot of stuff I didn't like, but the normal stuff to keep a business kind of running, you know. My favorite duties were just working on the working on the trees, man. Just learning and working on trees. I didn't really have a favorite job. The whole experience was great. You know, I learned so much and had such a wide experience wide array of experiences i enjoyed a lot a lot of it but i guess my favorite was just learning in a in a such a surreal environment oh i can't can't even imagine in what ways were you treated differently as time went on mm. as time went on i think they were more harsh on me so if I made a mistake once, it was a learning experience. But if I made a mistake again, it was a you know it was a big deal. I should have learned my lesson. And so, over time, there it got harder and more difficult and more rigorous in my learning and time while I was there. You know, every day it got harder and harder and harder, and in different ways. A lot of different ways. Some ways got easier, but a lot of ways it just became more difficult. Being away from home, being away from my fiance, eating their food and working those hours, it builds up and it builds up and I get five hours of sleep, four hours of sleep and over the course of a month, three months, six months, a year, two years, it, it all builds up and it just gets harder and harder, more difficult. When your fiance arrived finally, did did she arrive at the end of your apprentice apprenticeship? Is that what happened? No, she was there towards the beginning. Oh, towards the beginning. Ooh, okay. Yeah, well, I was gonna kind of say. Like in the middle, I, I, I feel guess. like uh, more towards the middle. It was the middle. Got it. Yeah, that would make it hard. I guess if she, if she was at the she was there at the end, it seems like it would be nice to have her there at the end, but. If she was there at the beginning, then you probably just missed her even more the rest of the time. So that's rough. <laughs> well, I mean, 
I mean, honestly, it, it, there was no difference really because I worked every day and I worked at nights. I never got to see her Barely for the saw most her. part. Yeah, exactly. So it just wow. felt it just felt the same for the most part. Honestly, it was just difficult. Every part of wow. it was difficult. It was hard on her too. It was really difficult, challenging yeah. for her. I'm sure. Never get to talk to you. Is there a a life lesson maybe that Taiga taught you that uh, will always stick with you? Anything you can think of? Hmm. Yeah. He taught me that, you know, bonsai, being a bonsai professional, professional is very difficult. And to be successful, you have to work hard and you have to put a lot of energy into your work and family life and I saw Oyakata do that and he was a good role model in that aspect he spent he worked very hard and he also spent a lot of time with his family and gave a lot of attention to his family which he really was a a role model in that aspect and he really forced me to focus and to stay focused and I'd probably say that's the biggest one that I took away from it. Very good life lessons there, most definitely. So, yeah. uh, and I think this may be the question that we kind of got last time. How did your experience in Japan change you as a person? Uh, did it rub off on you in, in certain ways uh, that you could maybe reflect on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I changed a lot while I was there. You know, I was there for three over three years, and people change in three years. And I took a lot away from the culture that isn't normal to America, and for me personally, too. So I really had a hard time, you know, learning to focus and to stay focused. And so that was a positive change that happened within myself, is that I'm able to focus a lot better and to stay focused and to push through those through those difficult situations and work through really uncomfortable situations and to be polite and grateful for everything that I do have. Um, I'm a lot more appreciative of what I have now and I try to be a lot more respectful to my elders and people above me, you know, my family, and to just be patient with situations. And it made me a lot more resilient as a person in a lot of ways. So I'm very grateful for all those tough at the time lessons that made me a better person. Patience uh, is so important with bonsai and just in life in general. And I'm glad that you were able to learn those different things in Japan. So I uh, wanted to change gears here a little bit and talk a little bit more about trees and, and uh, actual bonsai and, and some things within the nursery. Yeah. I was curious, uh, what, what soil and fertilizer did you use at Taishoen? We used... We basically use the same mix for everything, just different particle sizes. So we used uh, about 60% Akadama, 
20% pumice type of rock and then a 20% of lava rock. That was our basic mix. Great, okay. But, you know, what changed was the particle size. So the bigger trees got bigger particles and smaller trees got smarter, smaller, smaller particle size. And then we kind of fine adjusted if a, a specific tree needed more water or less water and kind of adjusted it from that main main kind of mix. Did you use a uh, aeration or a, a drainage layer? Yeah, so the drainage layer was just the same mix, but a one size bigger. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. One thing I'm curious about, uh, um, a lot of people talk about Kiryu or river sand. I don't know. Mm. So I buy the pre-mixed, but to be really straightforward, I actually don't really know which particle is the river sand. And I'm just curious if we have something that would work here in the U.S. for that, like say just a crushed granite. Is that the exact same thing as river sand yeah. for the most part? So or I'm, I'm curious you, if there's like... Yeah, so Kidu and river sand are different. Um, river sand ah, is like a, decompo- okay. a decomposed granite. And they use that a lot for growing because it doesn't hold a lot of water. And... It's uh, readily available in different sizes from big to small. But Kidu is, they usually use that for like flowering trees or fruiting trees. It does something with the pH to kind of help lower that pH for those flowering, flowering trees and fruiting trees. But it wasn't something that we usually added into the mix unless we kind of had it laying around. Um, I know some of the pre-mixed bags that we get from Japan have Kidu in it. Not a lot in there. It's not going to make that big of a difference in the overall scheme of things. But I wouldn't necessarily add it or be worried about taking it out. It's kind of just another ingredient that gets added in. Um, River sand or decomposed granite. um, Yeah, just just a rock. It's basically just a rock. A heavy hard rock that doesn't hold any moisture and just lets more air blow through that root ball. Gotcha. Generally speaking, I uh, I just use the premixes that Jonas gets in, or sometimes I'll just use take Akadama, and I usually cut it with sifted pumice. Yeah, great. It seems like there's a lot of debate here about if uh, lava or scoria is good or not. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) Yeah, don't even get me started on that. (laughs) A lot of people have used that for a long time. I mean, we would grow trees in 100% lava. Even here in America, I grow a lot of things in 100% lava. I have some pines that are growing in 100% lava. I have some trident maples that grow in 100% lava. I have some fruiting stuff that grows in 100% lava. So I don't know. I think I think really what it is is use what works for you in your environment. You know, I'm not a scientist. I think uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for a lot of stuff that people say. If it works for you, use it. Maybe experiment around, change some things up. But there's just so many factors that can change 
the output of what we see and not always what we see is what's happening either so yeah i think that's uh something that i don't really want to put my name into the hat i don't want to get started in that i use lava i don't have any problems with it yeah i use a lot of stuff if it doesn't work for me i don't use it that's kind of where i sit in the whole debate yeah yeah for sure yeah, I, I don't know what my thoughts are there. I will say with any particle that you use, if we're talking pumice or lava, I do think it's really important that you sift sift it or like clean sift, it even, like rinse it. Clean it and sift um, it. Make sure there's no dust or dirt or small particle size. Everything, you know, if you, if you get pumice or lava or even river sand and it looks like it's dirty or dusty, abnormally so, rinse it rinse it with water let it dry and then sift it yeah that's very important we don't want any of that stuff in there yeah no i can definitely say from personal experience when i first started bonsai i started getting pumice and it it wasn't sifted or washed and like uh, it would just create these big chunks of like this nasty pumice dusk and it like gets hard and uh it is just bad news so 100 percent. i'm all about sifting my pumice and and rinsing it very much so so awesome glad to hear that you are too um what kind of lava and pumice should be clean yeah so for fertilizer for sure we use just like um like a rapeseed cake kind of thing so for conifers we just use an organic kind of a two 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 little fertilizer ball that was extended release um and then for deciduous we used the same kind of concept but it was like a little chemical a little chemical ball but we used a lot less of it um and then we also used a liquid fertilizer for our really important trees every so often as well so but I always uh, recommend organic that, fertilizer. Do you know if the liquid was organic? Was it like some type of fish emulsion or kelp or something? No, it was... It or was, a, a chemical. Yeah, it was some kind of chemical. Gotcha. I don't know cool. exactly, though. I can't read Japanese, um, but I know that it was... Makes sense. How did the nursery manage pest and disease? Sprays every Spray every two weeks. If it's there or not, we spray it every wow. two weeks during the growing season, okay. every two weeks. Yep. Wow. Gotcha. That's that's quite a bit. It is. And just uh, all diff- like a rotating rotating line of chemicals? Yeah. So rotating line of chemicals. And then if we had some kind of specific issue, we'd use something dedicated for that. You know, we'd have a rotating set of chemicals that for issues that we normally come across in our area. And then if we came across a specific issue, we'd also hit it with something special for that specific issue. So like for issues, like for instance, we'd spray for bugs and mites and beetles, but then if we had spider mites, we'd also spray additionally for spider mites. Got it. So I think one thing that I was doing in my personal garden for a while is I was mixing fungicide and pesticide in one tank. This was a while yep. back. I haven't been doing this recently because I've learned that it it can there can be negative effects, but it kind of I think it depends on the specific chemicals that you're mixing together. 
Like some are okay, right. some are not. Seems That's right. Too complex for me to really figure out. So I'm just separating them now. Did you guys combine them on occasion? Yeah, we combined and a lot I'm of sure stuff. it was hard to No, I asked questions, you know. I was asking That's... what we were spraying, why we were spraying. We mixed a lot of stuff together. But we also sprayed separately too. So sometimes we'd only spray white pines or sometimes we'd only spray deciduous trees or sometimes we'd spray everything and we'd mix chemicals. We mixed a lot of chemicals and yeah, but whether that was detrimental or not, I don't really know. I don't know what chemicals can be mixed and what shouldn't be. So you know, I'm not a I'm not a scientist again, but overall, I think it's fine to mix some chemicals, and then you should be careful. Just you know, read up and make sure you read and do a little research on it first. Nice. Yep. Follow the label. I like it. There um, you go. Follow the label. Would you talk to me a little bit? Up- would you talk to me a little bit about watering at Taishoen? I, I got to imagine it's kind of crazy with all those shohin and all those small trees. Yeah, so watering, Japan is a little different. So in Japan, their wet season is during the summer. And so when it's hot, it's also raining. So they'd have a typhoon season. And it was also very humid during the summer. Whereas like here in California, it's very, very hot and dry. And usually it's wet during the winter. And in Japan, it's very dry and windy and cold in the winter. And so it's very important to water under those circumstances. If it's dry, we need to be sure that we're watering. If it's windy, we need to be sure that we're watering. So there's a, it's very different than how it is here in America, especially California. Watering, you just need to, we should be adjusting for our own personal environment. How are our, where, what kind of environment are our trees in? You know, if it's raining every day, we don't need to be watering. But if it's hot, we need to be watering multiple times a day. And so, you know, there'd be times where we'd go, a month without watering in the summer and then there'd be some times where we'd water three two or three times a day in the winter so it's a very kind of different environment water when needed gotcha and did you just say at those peak times were you going out say maybe like every three hours or so to check on the trees yeah so as an apprentice that was a huge aspect of my duties was to water. At Taishouin, usually about every four hours we'd water if it needed it, if it wasn't raining. But yeah, during the hot times of the year where there's no, where it's dry, every four hours we'd water. Again, Thank you. you know, you have to, you have to, you have to adjust for your environment and your situation. You know, what's the day like changes every day. So we need to be just conscious about what's our environment. That's all it really is. And that's the same thing with soil. You know, we have to change our soil for our environment. If we're in a very wet environment, we want to use less akadama. 
if we're in a very dry environment, more Akadama, something to hold that moisture in longer. Great tips. I like that. I, I feel like uh, watering in general can be complex in nature, just knowing exactly when the trees need water always, but uh, yeah. some really great tips there. So I appreciate that. Nice. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is, are, are there any emerging trends that you can think of while you were in Japan or any trends that you saw maybe that are new. I know that some of the, the trends that I've heard about, for example, are like at one point in time, cork bark black pine was super popular and now it's kind of moved on and it's not really a trend anymore. I've, you know, some people think that uh, using Ito Agawa to graft onto junipers is just a trend and it's going to be something that they transition away from in Japan. I was just curious if you saw any trends that are currently going on that maybe have more recently started or started since you have been there. Was so, curious your thought on that. Itoyagawa is some of the best foliage for a juniper. It's very like disease resistant. It's very healthy. It's easy to keep care of. It's very hardy. And a lot of people like the color and the way it looks. And so the professionals will graft Itoyagawa because people pay more for good foliage. So that's kind of the the whole thought process behind it. As far as trends, uh, nothing that I saw really change while I was there. I didn't really see much change in the three three and a half years while I was there. Totally. No. Um, or if you, you know, like it, it well, uh, if we're, we're still talking and you, you think of any just trends that you've seen, like, I don't know, over the last 10 years, 15 years, it'd be interesting to, to see or hear, but if not, that's totally cool as well. I may edit that one out. So the best way, <laughs> the best way to look uh, at trends is to look at Kokofu books, look at books, you know, ah, do a little bit of point. studying book learning. Great suggestion. Love it. Does Taisho Taisho N have any different approaches to bonsai compared to any other professional nurseries? Hmm. So my Oyakata Taiga, he has a, he is always, he's a very much an artist. And so he likes to try a lot of new things and work on crazy dead wood and do a lot of cool stuff with small trees, shohin trees. But overall, you know, it it really kind of depends on the situation and trends kind of change over time. Is there like a Taisho style, I guess would be be, be my question. Do they design their trees mm. in a specific way? I know Aichien style was typically to have the key branch and the apex pointing in the, the same direction. So what is really nice and unique about my Oyakata is that he doesn't have just one style. He can look at a tree and adjust and tweak the style so it fits really well for the tree. And so we don't have any kind of like all our trees look like this kind of aspect to it, which I really like. I think a lot of people can get stuck in doing something one way and making everything kind of look like one style. But really, to be a good bonsai artist, 
we need to have a lot of different styles and be able to adjust that for the tree. So that's something that's really difficult to do. You know, it's easier said than done. Absolutely. And are would you say that you are adopting that style as well of being... I'm, I'm trying. Not necessarily having yeah, a style. Trying. Great. I'm trying to... Great. I'm trying to be able to adjust my style for given material. I don't want to be stuck in a way of doing things. Bonsai is just like bonsai, you know, it's constantly changing and evolving. And I think that's important for a artist and a professional to be able to evolve and change and adjust with trees as well. Definitely. I feel like we should always be learning and you always can learn, especially when it comes to bonsai. There's always something new to learn and can always improve. Even if you're the greatest professional in the world, there's That's you, right. it's kind of a never ending, never ending craft and art form. So never ending. No one can know awesome, everything. Man. No one is the best at everything, which is really unique. And I, I, you know, one of the reasons why I really like bonsai. Wanted to ask you a little bit about those. I saw you work on several really beautiful Itoagawa trees, uh, small size trees, and I believe that most of those were actually man-made, like the ones that are all twisted up and then they add shari and deadwood over a period of, of time. Do you know who initially grew a lot of these? Did Taishoen get them from a lot of different sources or was it kind of like one main source? Mm, ancient Japanese secret. Jeremiah, I'd have to kill you if I told you. Ah. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they come from Solid. all over Solid. Japan. Um, there's a lot of different people who grow. Usually the best grown material comes from enthusiasts, not professionals. So people who really spend a lot of time and effort into growing material make the best material. Professionals, being a professional, you know, we have to adjust how much time we put into something whereas an enthusiast or just someone who does it as a hobby has a lot more time to put in to you know material so got it well i am a bonsai enthusiast and i am also very interested in creating and growing trunks and really like making trees uh, but definitely the the growing the trunk and the bari aspect of things on that note, do you have any tips or suggestions for people out there that want to create these types of junipers? So the only thing that I can say in words without teaching is we have to let things get bigger here in America. You know, we get really antsy and we want to make a bonsai out of it, but we need to have bigger trunks and that just takes more time you know, letting them grow bigger. We should be letting things grow bigger. Definitely agree with you on that aspect. And uh, it, it looks, uh, yeah, a lot of people have in the U.S. have uh, very skinny trunks and then they try and create a bonsai. And I think it'd look way better if they fatten that trunk up and grew the tree into that next size or next yeah. several sizes. So totally agree That's with right. you there. Mm-hmm. With these trees, the twisted, man-made, made-to-look-like-yamadori-type junipers, were these, uh, did they start off as Itoagawa, or were they mostly grafted, do you think? Um, they were started as cuttings. Perfect. And you think they were Itoagawa 
to start off with? Or do you think maybe they were like Kishu or, or something else that the trunk fattens up thicker and then they grafted on Itoagawa? Or they both were ways. Itoagawa cuttings from both ways. Cool. Very cool. I'm I'm currently growing quite a few myself and I've twisted them up, crunched them down. I'm adding shari uh, every year or every two years. And got some fun little trunks going on right now. I think my oldest ones Ooh. are probably about eight years old now, and I'm I'm getting nice. excited about them. But I started with all uh, Kishu. I, I wish I would have started with Itoagawa. Mm. However, um started with Kishu because that's all I could find. And I, I'm probably going to try and graft some of them over. So Yeah. Send me some pictures, Do dude. you think that... Uh, <laughs> okay, I will. I will. Do you think that they they container grow these trees the entire time, or or do they ever put them in the field, or they experiment with escape rooting, like allowing the so roots to escape from the pot and to the ground a little bit? Yeah. So a lot there's it's done in all ways. You know, you can container grow them, you can grow them in the ground, you can escape grow them as you call it, or use colanders. There's a lot of techniques. There isn't one way to do it you know there's multiple ways to do it and if you don't have a a plot of land just grow them in a container yeah that's whatever you are able to do do it that way but there's a lot that are grown in the ground and there's a lot that are grown in containers as well nice nice i think my strategy is to try some in both because i i think there's like different there's pluses and minuses to both ways in the ground everything's going to go a lot faster you could lose track of the roots and end up with a big mess so i'm kind of doing some in the ground i'm doing some in containers some in colanders i'm doing some escape route method and just doing a lot of experimentation uh i I was curious the best way to do it yeah awesome do you know like uh do these those trees in particular those twisted up little junipers that are man-made are those more uh, like a lot cheaper than Yamadori in Japan? Uh, so, hmm, I guess it really depends on the piece of material. So a really good piece of Yamadori is going to be a lot more expensive than a really good small tree. But if you have some big Yamadori, but it doesn't have good foliage and it's not interesting, there's there's a lot of variation in there. So... It's all relative. What's good? What's not? Totally, totally. Great way to put it. Did you uh, did you see prices going up um, over the three years that you were there, or or like did COVID affect prices at all? Yeah, the price trend is going up definitely because there's a lot of foreign people going into Japan and buying a lot of stuff, a lot of pots and trees and material. And so the demand is really high. And so the price is going up. The price is continually to go up. Got it. Got it. I was looking at through your Instagram before uh, we jumped onto this podcast. And one thing you mentioned, (laughs) there was a quote that said, you should buy your wife new kitchen utensils and use the old (laughs) utensils for repotting purposes. (laughs) Yeah. I was just curious what what utensils exactly uh, you you would use for repotting and yeah like basically which one should I be using which one should I steal from my wife so 
you know those bamboo spoons and forks or those bamboo kind of wooden utensils those make great repotting tools cut off the spoon part of it and shape it a little bit and you have a nice big chopstick kind of device to use for repotting bamboo is great Ah, nice okay perfect okay so you use the the bamboo ones or the wood ones and you're basically making different size chopsticks perfect very cool okay so and we kind of touched on this already so you may not have a whole lot to add here because you you answered some of this but if you were starting from seed cutting or air layer for deciduous trees how would you create a great trunk and nabari good good deciduous starts from all of those they start from seed they start from cutting and they start from air later um, the best way to really work on that nabari is to make sure that we're growing outwards, not upwards. You know, we don't want to pull too, when every time we repot, we don't want to pull the trunk out of the soil too much because then all those roots are just going to grow down. We want them to grow out. So really focus on growing the roots out, not up. That's what I can say that America really needs to work on the most as far as building a better Nabari. And for small trees, we should be trying to make more small roots rather than less big roots, especially for showing. And how do you accomplish that? Just make sure that your your pot size is adequate width-wise and then yeah, making sure that we're not lifting or raising the tree too far out of the pot when we repot. You know, really focus on okay, growing those roots out. And actually, I've had to reset a few trees just this year because they were raised over 10, 20 years out of the pot too quickly, and it really ruined the nabari. And so I've had to kind of reset some and set them lower in the pot and try to grow new roots or even start a whole new air layer just to fix those roots. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great tips there. Great tips. All right. I guess I just, I kind of had just two more questions written down for you. Cool. <laughs> one, one is what tips would you manage? Oh, excuse me. What tips would you give to manage bonsai in spring? Spring spring is really important because our trees are growing really you know that's when they grow the most. And so we want to make sure that we're not watering too much during the spring because that's when needles get long, leaves get big and roots are growing. And when there's too much water, you know that can affect the overall health and the root growth during that time period. So we really want to make sure that we let our soil dry out a little more to encourage new roots to grow. But, you know, I know it's very difficult because most people go to work and so we need to water when we are able to. So I would just say just try to manage water and fertilize. That's the most important thing to kind of focus on in the spring along with fungus and um, disease and pests and whatever else. Yeah, watering can be tough. I unfortunately don't have 
Shoheen in my collection, mostly because I just have to go to go to work and then I'm gone for most of the day and I, I can only water in the mornings. And then when I get back from work, that, that does make it really tough. But someday I definitely want to have some nice Shoheen in my collection. <laughs> Don't let that stop you, man. There's multiple ways to get around that, especially for small trees. We can set up a, like a sunshade or use natural shade. Even setting up a little like a uh, watering, automatic watering station where we can put small trees into like a water saucer or a bed of rocks with pumice. There's a lot of ways to get around that. So don't let, don't let that stop you from, you know, appreciating Shoheen bonsai. Hey, I appreciate those tips. Those are those are solid, and uh, I should experiment some more with those. I'm always just, I, just Shoheen just worries me a bit Don't because be of the watering, but I'm sure I could do it. Um, so you thank you. It. Everyone it. can do it. Everyone can do it. You just nice. You know, if we we live in California, which is the the most harsh environment during the summer. And it's totally possible. You just need to kind of adjust adjust the layout a little bit. That's all. Yeah. One thing that I really would like to learn more about and become more proficient in is setting up watering systems, automated watering systems. I just have never done anything like that. And so I need to uh, take the time and actually learn how to do that. And not so much like I prefer hand watering. Most definitely, I think I'll always hand water my best trees but for periods of time when i'm at work or if say i was on vacation it definitely could be good uh in the long term and then also just to grow the things that i'm my projects where i'm just growing trunks and primary branches out i think automated watering system would save me a lot of time because i i spend a lot of time watering (laughs) so if there's any engineers out there and want to make a lot of money someone should design a system where we place sensors inside of the soil and it only waters when we set it to a certain moisture level and then it waters so if someone can come up with an idea where you know you almost stick like a probe into your bonsai pot and then it measures moisture content. And then once it reaches a certain moisture content, then it waters that pot, waters that one tree, that one specific one. And then once it's been watered, it measures that moisture and then shuts off. If somebody could design that, that'd be great. That would absolutely be awesome. Uh, I'm sure it could be done. <laughs> Sounds like a complicated problem to solve, but uh, it, sign me up. I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Maybe we'll all have uh, AI robots watering for us when we go on vacation uh, like five hey, years from now. There so. we go. <laughs> That's a good idea. Nice. Cool, man. Uh, all right. Just one more question for you and kind of already asked some of this already, but What do you think in general we should be focusing on in the U.S. over the next few decades to improve our bonsai? So I think we really need to focus on not instant bonsai. You know, bonsai isn't instant. It's a process 
of many years and decades to grow and harvest and cultivate these magnificent trees. And it takes a lot of effort. If we could all just slow down the instant bonsai and enjoy the process for the process and trust the process, I think in the long run, we'll have a lot better material and the bonsai space in America will become better. Um, there's so many great professionals in America right now. Um, there's, you know, we're learning so much as a whole. There's so much good information out there now that I think it's just a matter of time um, that America starts to get really good. But we just need more better material. And if that means that everybody just grows for the future, I think we could be a lot better for that. I agree with you. I think it's about the journey and not so much the destination with bonsai or we yeah. should focus on the journey and appreciate the journey and completely agree with you on the pa patience piece. So thank you so much for yeah. that. Enjoy the process. Not everything we're going to be able to enjoy for ourselves. We want an instant bonsai. That's when we purchase a bonsai that's, you know, already finished. But if we're growing, then we need to just enjoy the process and work on it. Hey, very wise of you, Adam. I really appreciate it, man. And hey, really, really appreciate talking to you. Uh, it's been very interesting. I hope we can keep chatting every once in a while. I'm glad to have you back. We're very lucky in the U.S. to have you back and ha have you, uh, thank you spread your knowledge throughout the United States. So, hey, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate it. Going to hit stop right now. However, uh, if you could just stick stick on the line for just maybe like a hair longer, I'd really appreciate that just so we can make sure this uploads. Yeah. Um, but you are yeah, absolutely Jeremiah, awesome, thank man. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate you having me on and, you know, talking and being curious about, you know, the everything that I went through. You know, we talked a lot about a wide array of things and a lot of those things are really complicated and deep and so I just kind of touched in into them a little bit you know I didn't want to get too into a lot of things um, but I like how you know we hit a lot of different subjects and you know there was a lot to it and I, I and I appreciate you having me on dude seriously thank you I always enjoy talking to you and seeing you and it was great thank you oh and also everyone should check out my Instagram adam.jp dot b-o-n adam dot j-p dot bone check out my instagram i don't post often but um when i do i try to make it something interesting thank you everybody and yeah thank you jeremiah i really appreciate it dude seriously hey absolutely uh, i've really enjoyed following your instagram it is fantastic i hope you keep posting i hope you post a little more would love to see what yeah, you're up to, to love to more. see those bonsai pics I know. I need to post more. <laughs> you should. You should. Uh, I, I just love to follow you. So, yeah. Um, cool, man. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. I appreciate it.